everyone. Welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, Senator Cynthia Loomis from the great state of Wyoming joins us to give us a preview of her agenda in 2024. We're going to discuss everything from energy policies that are harming Americans to border issues, China, and yes, even Bidenomics. Vera Matt, she's going to give will help us think about the hurdles and challenges in the upcoming year and hopefully bring a little hope as well. As we get into the conversation, just a little bit more about the Senator. Senator Loomis is the first woman to serve as United States Senator from the state of Wyoming. Born on a cattle ranch in Laramie County, Senator Loomis has spent her entire career fighting for Wyoming families, communities, businesses, and values. Senator, it is a pleasure to have you on She Thinks. Thanks, Beverly. It's nice to be with you today. And I, I want to start with a personal question. Just as I read in your bio, you grew up on a cattle ranch. What was it like growing up on a cattle ranch? Well, it, it's a kind of an idyllic way to grow up. Um, I was the third girl of four kids. Uh, my parents had a, a small family ranching operation that we all helped with. So the minute we could fully depress the clutch on a tractor, uh, we were in the hay field. Uh, so we were nine and 10 years old when we started. When you learn how to work hard and that you're an important part of an operation when you're that age, it sort of embeds in you uh, these core values that you take with you for the rest of your life. Sh stewardship, uh, taking care of animals, uh, doing the job you're expected to do, uh, learning how to be a jack of all trades on a ranch. Um, and uh, it, it's a great way to grow up. You know, you're outside most of the time. Uh, you get to see the accomplishments of your day's work. Um, I can't say enough good things about it. Now, I know that even prior to being senator, you were a U.S. congresswoman. You also served in the House in Wyoming. How did you get from Cattle Ranch to working in mm -hmm. politics, working your way up to senator? I was a senior student in animal science, in agriculture at the University of Wyoming, and I needed some humanities credits. I found a kind of a political science credit um, to be an intern at the Wyoming State Legislature. And so I signed up for that. And it was one of those life-changing experiences. I just fell in love with legislating. Uh, just two years after I graduated from the University of Wyoming in animal science, uh, I was uh, elected uh, to the Wyoming legislature. So 24 years old, uh, I became a state legislator and I got on the Judiciary Committee. And there were so many diverse issues on that committee that I developed an interest in law. So after four years of that, I I left the legislature and went back to law school, uh, clerked at the Supreme Court in Wyoming, and then went back and, and legislated beyond that. Became very interested in taxation because I chaired the House Revenue Committee in Wyoming, eventually became state treasurer, later U.S. Congress and now U.S. Senate. And based on the state of Wyoming, which does have a lot of natural resources, it's it's probably not surprising to our listeners that one of the policy issues that you focus on quite a bit and legislation revolving around it is the issue of energy. And I think especially in winter, we think of energy quite a bit because we want to make sure that our homes are, are warm and that we have adequate access to it. Give us a little idea of how rich in resources Wyoming is. Well, Wyoming is the second largest 
net exporter of energy in the United States, second only to Texas. Uh, we are like eighth in oil, number one by far in coal, have been number one coal producer since 1986. Uh, we're the have the largest reserves of uranium in the U.S. We have rare earth minerals. Uh, oil and gas are huge for us. So um, it is by far and away the number one economic driver uh, and employer in our state. And I want to bring up a statement that John Kerry made recently. He said that no more coal plants should be permitted to be opened in the United States, but also globally. What would that mean to Wyoming? And what would that mean to the cost of electricity if we don't continue to use coal um, as a fossil fuel that benefits people, especially those who are low income and obviously uh, need those prices to stay low? In America, about 72% of our energy comes from coal, even right now. So think about just completely erasing 72% of our energy sources and going totally to oil, natural gas, solar, wind, and nuclear. First of all, we're not ready to do it. Secondly, it takes about 20 years to get a new uh, mining operation permitted. So even for finding the types of critical minerals that are necessary to build electronic vehicles and convert, and convert to uh, um, an electric vehicle uh, car fleet in this country, uh, we can't do it for 20 more years. Uh, we're buying too many of our rare earth minerals from China. We're very dependent on them, even though we don't have to be. Uh, there are places all over the U.S. where we could produce uh, the critical minerals necessary to move forward, uh, but we choose not to. Uh, we've seen uh, declines uh, in the opportunities to pr produce oil and gas and coal in, in Wyoming. Recently, just a week ago, 19 employees were laid off at a coal mine here. Um, energy prices are going up in Wyoming. Pacific Power uh, has proposed to our Public Service Commission a very large, very steep rate increase, even though uh, we are exporting from Wyoming way more power uh, than we need to consume here. And, and these are all government-induced problems. Um, we know that we can produce energy uh, in the cleanest manner uh, in the world, uh, including from sources that are fossil fuel based. We know that we can now trap carbon right out of the air. We can capture it. And we know that some of the formulas that are being used to make uh, CO2 policy globally uh, are in error. For example, Beverly, I, I'm in the cattle business. I was raised on a cattle ranch, still I'm in the cattle business. Uh, Bill Gates has uh, spent many months trying to uh, change uh, the global consumption of meat, um, saying that cattle, for example, are a significant contributor to CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, a study at Oxford University in England that revised the formula to make it more accurate, then applied that new formula to cattle in Italy and found out that they're not emitters at all. They're carbon sinks. They help trap carbon 
in the soil in a way that diminishes CO2 in the atmosphere. So we have these very aggressive policies that in some cases are based on, on faulty economic models, uh, yet they're driving policy globally and even in the United States where we have the cleanest energy in the world for a very large energy consuming country. Well, even the UN asked Americans in the past couple of weeks to reduce their meat consumption. So this is a big push to get people to stop eating meat. And one of the, the things I want to bring up is that often these policies that are enacted, they're typically more through regulation through government agencies than legislation that is voted on, correct? And Absolutely. so what what is, for, if you could expand on that a little bit and also talk about what that means then for the energy industry when things could be changed at the drop of a dime, depending on what an agency may want to, to put out there as a new regulation. Okay, let's roll the clock back a little bit to when Donald Trump was president. We were energy independent and we were an energy exporting country. Now, uh, when Joe Biden took office, one of his first actions uh, was to shut down uh, the Keystone Pipelines construction uh, and was to put so many regulations on the development of oil and gas and coal in this country uh, that it diminished our ability to respond not only to our energy needs, but our other countries' energy needs. That required uh, President Biden to go to countries like Saudi Arabia, and even Iran is getting to produce more oil to the tune of $80 billion, uh, their oil revenues now being used to support Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, and Russia's efforts in Ukraine. So we're shooting ourselves in, our, in the foot. This is a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Uh, and it's happened through regulation, not through legislation. Uh, the good news is it can be undone. The bad news is uh, Congress doesn't have the votes to undo it right now uh, because uh, we've got a 51-49 Senate with the Democrats in control all supporting this massive regulatory agenda uh, of President Biden. Uh, so we need desperately need a new president. We need regulators who will go back and follow the letter of the law uh, rather than pushing uh, a green energy agenda via regulation. And furthermore, they're using other tools if you have a legitimate regulate, uh, re regulation, rule and regulation, you have to go through a public process where the public has an opportunity to comment on those rules. What this administration is using more and more are end runs around the process so the public doesn't have an opportunity to comment on a proposed regulation. They're using things like agency guidance, uh, which is a regulation by any other name. It can be very binding uh, on producers and limit their ability uh, to produce the energy our nation needs, but without having to go through that public process. Uh, so we're working very hard to stop those kinds of end runs around our law. Uh, they're trying to remove more land, for example, Bureau Land Management land, that is proposed by law to have multiple uses. They're trying to add uses 
such as non-use or conservation uses that disallow other uses that are contemplated by law. Uh, so those are end runs around the laws and they're using it all under the guise of this Green New Deal uh, that is actually hurting our economy, uh, taking jobs, sending them overseas, making us more dependent on China, which we profess not to want, uh, and uh, producing products like electronic vehicles that people don't want to buy and that are non-economic unless they're subsidized by tax credits. So these are perverse incentives to distort our economy to meet an end that we can't solve. Um, we could shut down our economy. We could turn off every light, every heater, every air conditioner, every industry and go dark. And still, uh, because China and India and places in Eastern Europe continue to produce uh, much larger amounts of CO2 all the time, um, our efforts to go completely dark won't change a thing in terms of uh, CO2 emissions globally. Uh, so we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot uh, in a way that doesn't even help uh, the global CO2 uh, reduction advocates. And, and in so many ways, it's not just the economic side of this, and we will get into Bidenomics in just a bit, but this is also a national security concern as well. You mentioned China. They also are, are buying lots of farmland in the U.S., but we outsource um, so much to them. They, we also, as you said, are not energy independent anymore, which puts us at risk. But it's also what's going on on the border with people coming in. When we look at the national security aspect of the United States from energy, but also what's going on on the border. How concerned are you on what's taken place in this past year? And what are some of the steps we need to take for national security concerns moving forward? Well, let's start with China. Uh, they are buying farmland in the U.S. at unprecedented rates. Uh, for example, it was like 1% of foreign-owned land um, about 2010. And it's just grown exponentially since then. The national security concerns about that are not only to trap our food supply chains, but where they're trying to buy the land. It's in strategic places near U.S. military bases. Uh, so it looks like they're strategically buying farmland uh, so they can spy on uh, U.S. Uh, Department of Defense infrastructure. Now let's look at the border, which is also a huge factor here. On the southern border, we've had at least 161 identified and known uh, terrorists uh, come across the border. A number of those are gotaways. They're already in the U.S. Uh, we don't know where they are. Uh, we don't know what they're plotting. Uh, and then uh, a large number of, a larger number all the time uh, of people coming across the border, not from Mexico or Central America or South America. Uh, but from China, Africa, the Middle East. Um, and uh, it's pretty hard to believe uh, when they have to cross about 10 countries in an ocean to get to our border in order to claim asylum, uh, that they're serious about their as asylum needs. Um, they could have crossed a border from to their neighboring country and sought asylum there, but no, they're going halfway around the world to so-called seek asylum. Uh, so this is a sham. Um, just 
Yesterday, I think, was the very highest day um, in history uh, of uh, illegal border crossings, over 12,000 people in a day. Now, this is coming to be an everyday occurrence, Beverly. We've gone from 10,000 to 11,000 to now 12,000 plus. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's completely, utterly out of control. And that's because the Biden administration wants it that way. Uh, they want to have open borders. They want an open migration system. They want people to live wherever they want to live in the world, regardless of uh, our ability to enfold uh, uh, them uh, into the U.S. economy, find them jobs, teach them our, our, our language, our culture, and uh, American values in a way that protects American values and nurtures our national security. So these are very alarming occurrences. Um, and something about which we have to be ever vigilant. So you're you're going to see mostly Republicans in Congress, but hopefully a few Democrats join us uh, uh, as we try to achieve uh, border stability by basically forcing the Obama or excuse me the Biden administration into doing it. And that would be by setting metrics in the way we spend our money, telling them that unless we meet certain metrics or goals uh, in uh, reducing illegal immigration, that certain monies will not be released to the administration. That's a pretty sad way to have to make policy, but that seems to be where we are, Beverly, because uh, these 8 million people or more that uh, have to be absorbed into the United States economy uh, during this Biden uh um, economy, um, you just can't be absorbed responsibly. You've got um, people living in streets, living on soccer fields, so American kids can't use them, living in hotels, uh, and they don't have the jobs or the skill sets that are needed. And they're displacing people who are standing in line uh, trying to get here legally. Right. right. And so I think it you very eloquently put out the challenges that we face in, in certain areas in this country and the hurdles that we have up ahead. I wanted to see, though, as we're looking towards 2024, any hope that you can give Americans about the work that you and your fellow senators and fellow members of Congress are working on, especially in relation to the economy. So many people, inflation is really, really hard on them. People are using uh, credit cards more than ever before, living paycheck to paycheck. Any hope that you can give us in the upcoming year? Now, Beverly, consumer debt is now over a trillion dollars for the first time. Uh, we've got people uh, who have maxed out their uh, credit cards and then are going on to tap into uh, their retirement savings. So uh, these are dicey times. Interest rates have pushed people away from being able to buy homes and are keeping people uh, my age, for example, that are ready to downsize, uh, keeping them in the homes they have now because they have a better interest rate uh, if they stay put. So the housing market is suffering. And uh, on top of that, just the things that Americans buy every day, food, gasoline, heat, rent, all have gone up. In my state of Wyoming, uh, it costs over $12,000 a year more to do the very same things, buy the very same things uh, that we did before uh, this massive interest rate increase and in inflation 
affected us. And th those inflation rates are because uh, the Congress overspent during COVID and then kept up at the COVID spending rates uh, thereafter and continue to do that today. So here's a couple things. Uh, we need to um, go back to pre-COVID rates with regard to our discretionary spending. And if we really, really care about Social Security, we'll make some changes in order to save it instead of tell people there's nothing to worry about. Because there is something to worry about. If we let it go on autopilot the way it is now, we're going to hit a wall where Social Security benefits will drop by about one quarter in one year and then continue to go down from there. And the reason we're doing that is because neither party has the political courage to fix it and to inform the people uh, of this country what it's going to take to fix it. Now, Medicare is under even more stress because it's going to become insolvent even more soon than Social Security. So we have what we call entitlement spending. That's the um, Social Security and Medicare um, being uh approaching insolvency. And then we still have this extreme spending in what we call discretionary spending. So we really do need uh, to reduce both discretionary spending and, and reform uh, in order to preserve uh, the ability of our social security programs and Medicare programs to be able to serve uh, our elderly. So I had proposed setting up a, um, a commission uh, to help us uh, work through these matters, uh, bipartisan, uh, and then have a vote on whatever bill is produced, up or down vote, so we can't uh, avoid the topic any longer. We're having a hard time getting traction on that, Beverly. Yeah. Um, even that, uh, there's a tremendous resistance by people here who are you know, worried about their own re-elections uh, with both parties so neck and neck in both houses of Congress. Uh, neither party wants to uh, be the one who proposes changes that the other party can try to dump on or exploit at the polls. So we're in this terrible uh, political uh, stasis uh, that is, makes it hard to solve those problems. It's not that hard to solve Social Security, to be honest. We know because it's run by actuarial tables like a like a normal retirement system. So there are levers and things we can do that would prevent us from having that dramatic effect. But we don't have the gumption to do it. So first we need some gumption. Uh, we need people on a bipartisan basis to come together on these things. I don't see it happening in 2024. Uh, the best thing I can see that could happen in 2024 uh, is retiring uh, the Obama, or rather the Biden administration. Uh, they're, uh, because of their profligate rulemaking, uh, because of the way they have become uh, dependent on our enemies for energy instead of being energy independent as we were before, because of the way they spend, which has uh, really fueled inflation, uh, we are uh, ever more dependent on other countries uh, and paying more for the goods we produce here. So the best thing we can do in 2024, to be honest, is to replace uh, the Biden administration. 
And I think one of the things that you you did leave us with with hope as well is that it's good to hear that there are senators like you who are putting in the hard work, even doing things that can be politically uh, a little tumultuous when it comes to elections. But we appreciate you being a strong leader and standing up for the things that will get our economy back on track, even if it's an uphill battle. So Senator Cynthia Loomis from the great state of Wyoming, thank you so much for all the work that you do and also for joining us on She Thinks today. Well, thank you, Beverly, for making She Thinks a Forum. And I want to thank the Independent Women's Forum for the work they're doing. Really admire, you know, what you're doing with Riley Gaines and trying to preserve women's sports for women. Uh, these are things that some of us never thought that would become issues. Uh, so the Independent Women's Forum is there to give voice uh, to to us. And I deeply appreciate it, Beverly. Thank you so much. Thank you. Us women have to stand together. So we, we so appreciate you. And we appreciate all of you for listening. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. And investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting IWF.org backslash donate. That is IWF.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or review. It does help. And we love it if you share this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She Thinks. From all of us here at IWF, thanks for watching. 